Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. Uh, Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about our prints. Most of it is my photography. We do fine art paper prints, which are beautiful traditional prints. You can get those framed or unframed. And then we also do metal prints, which are kind of a little bit more unique, one of a kind, vivid colors. Everybody that sees these metal prints are kind of in awe of them. And uh, we have tons of golf courses uh, photographed up on the site. We have some other ones I'm still trying to get up there. It just takes some time. Most recent one that we put up was Kiwa Island, uh, the ocean course. So we got a bunch of photos from a beautiful morning out at uh, Kiwa. And what we're doing through Sunday of this week, which would be through, I don't know, what would it be, the 20-something, uh, 22nd, we are doing 20% off those Kiowa prints, both paper and metal. So a good time to get yours if, uh, if you've been there and, and want a beautiful print of golf course on an ocean. Anyways, uh, today's episode is with Jeff Ogilvie. It's been a little while since we chatted. Obviously, it's been a nuts news cycle the early part of the year between the USGA, Patrick Reed, and something that I saw that was really cool that prompted this chat that I wanted to talk with Jeff about was this uh, player series event that Jeff hosted in Australia. And uh, it is a mixed event. Really cool. He goes into detail about that. And I, I think long term, this is an event that golf should take a look at and think, hey, can we do more of these or incorporate some of these maybe in America, Europe, other places? Because it is such a neat event, and I think there would just be a huge interest in it on a bigger scale. And hopefully one of these Australian ones is televised. It, it would be neat to see it. I'm sure it's televised in Australia, but it'd be great to see it televised or streamed somewhere that we could see it in the United States. Without further ado, here is Jeff Ogilvie. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Did you have like one teacher throughout your career, junior golf, or did you have multiple? What was your teaching situation? Um, I had a few lessons from a few different guys when I was younger, um, really young. I mean, I was, I think dad took me to get, took me to get some lessons before I was 10, sort of eight or nine, maybe 10 with the local pro at his golf club, a guy called Henry Castle, who was the pro at Yarra Yarra. That's where dad was a member. And I had a couple of lessons there. And I remember I wrote down like the four or five things he gave me, like the legs and the strongest thing in the body. And there was a couple of other, it was three or four things. And then I think I got a lesson to Bruce Green, who was the pro at Royal Melbourne, still is, still a legend. Really? Driving around at Royal Melbourne, giving lessons. Yeah. Been there forever. Um, Great player too. Wonderful teacher, old school teacher, a bit like more like um, 
like the Butch Harmon school, no video camera, no track man. He's just he's just got that old school kind of, I just tow, tow it in here or move the ball back in his stance and hit it hard today, Jeff, or stuff, stuff like that. But then I kind of, as we got into the system, like there's systems here. So as a good junior golfer, you sort of get noticed by the, the State Golf Association and the Institute of Sport. And once I kind of got into that system, Steve Bann and Dale Lynch, sort of Banny at first, um, who's coached a lot on tour, a lot of guys who play in the US. And um, then Dale Lynch pretty much from about 15, 16 onwards all the way through. So had a few like different ones along the way, but then it became Lynchy really for most of the time. And he came over with, he came over regularly with me and Bads and Stevie Allen and Craig Spence and Chalmers and yeah. So a did few you, different ones, but. Did you ever think about switching once you were with Lynch? No. Um, so I'm a good, I'm a bad student in that I think I'm just, uh, I don't, I'm very skeptical of everything anyone tells me. You know, I think I know better, you know, which is a hallmark of guys who play on tour generally when you talk to them, they all think they know the answers, but I actually did think I knew the answers and I liked Lynchy cause he helped me find them my own way. You know what I mean? He didn't tell me this is the way it is. He, um, said, he just did very wise about golf the way he spoke about it, you know, very educational. So I never even considered anyone else, to be honest, because I thought everything he said was great. Yeah, I, I always wonder about that because I feel like continuity is like the most important thing because in reality, I feel like most golfers are just usually working on the same things over and over again. And if you switch, it's just like you're starting f- from scratch and it could get you all all messed up. Well, I think uh, it should be a medicine, not a diet, you know, like it should be like going to the doctor. He fixes you up and then you go away and you go play again. And then you come back when you need the doctor again. Like, whereas um, they, they're a bit like chiropractors or something, not to pick on chiropractors, but like once you start going to a golf coach, it's like, well, you got to come back next week. You got to come back the week after you got to come back the week after. Well, if you were teaching me, I wouldn't need to come back all the time, you know? And I think, the, the art of a golf coach is that he teaches the golfer how to coach himself. He needs to become redundant at some point, um, I think. That was at least my philosophy. And if you look at the best golfers of all time, I mean, Jack, he barely needed a coach by the end. I mean, Stuart Maiden helped Jones. I mean, Hogan did it all himself. Sneed did it all himself. Trevino did it all himself. Um, guys like Freddie Couples kind of did it all himself. These, long, these long-term great ball strikers – found their game, their way, you know, and you can get advice and stuff along the way of how to help sort of signposts, if you like, try this, try this, try that, and you'll discover it over in that area. But I think if you have a guy who says, oh, well, you've got to come back and fix your setup or fix your backswing, you're never going to be any good until you do that. I think it's missing the point of coaching. Does that make sense? No, it does. The player's got to become self-playing because when you get out in the third hole and it feels bad that day, you can't, hang on, let me send you a, a video of swing and tell me what I'm doing wrong. I mean, you've got to work it out today. And then on the fourth and then the fifth, and the game is really the art is working it out as you go along there. So a great coach is someone who teaches someone how to do that. And if you get it right, then you're, you'll be infinitely more consistent because every day you wake up and you feel a little different and being able to figure out what, isn't quite working in a given day will that's they'll lead to more made cuts more times in contention 
Yeah, you just you're you're actually you'll be always polishing that skill that that skill of I've got to work it out today. How do I hit it straight today? You know, how do I hit a good shot right now? That's an art to kind of if you feel if you're feeling kind of crappy and you wake up feeling weird sometimes, and you do, you got to work out how to hit it today because no one cares how you if if you if your swing's getting there. You know what I mean? You got to shoot a good score today, and the the best golfers are the ones. Or the most consistent guys are the best golfers because some of the best golfers seem to be those guys who can like peak for a certain week with all their technique work and that. But I think the the, the true professional and the art of the game is to be able to hit a good shot right now, work it out. And if you don't hit this one good, the f- work out the next one, you know what I mean? And just repeat that. And I think the great coaches get their players to be more self-sufficient. You know, they get them motivated, they get them wanting to be out there and they get them wanting to kind of learn about their golf swing and play rather than just making them think if you hit all these certain positions and these numbers, you'll be a good player. You know, there's an irony about it that a, a golf, a great golf coach would make you see them less over time, which would thus cost them money in terms of less in time. It's a conflict in their business model. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's uh yeah, but the truly great coaches are. If you talk to them, they're like, even though you might see them behind the the guys on the range all the time, the truly great. I mean, Butch is just keeping half the time, most of the time, just keeping his guys in a good mood and pumping them up mentally and um have, just generally having a good time. And if they need, if they want something, he's there with it. You know what I mean? But he's generally just there helping them out. And then the great coaches are like that. They're not giving any technique lessons on the range on Thursday mornings. I mean. Some of them are, but the great ones don't. You know, they're just going to be there and make their player feel like a better player all the time. I think that's really the art. Um, Making the player love the game and love kind of working his game out, you know, because it's a hard game to work out. Was there a guy outside of your coaches that that you, over the years, that you like talking to the swing most about, like either player or coach, that you just like to chat with about, well, you know, different things about the swing? Um, all the way through, it was interesting. I always thought, like, if I go all the way through my golf, through the players, Justin Rose, when we were kids, he was always into the swing. Justin and Trevor were the two guys, Immelman, who really were into the swing and had great technical actions. And I always was interested in what they were working on and used to talk to them a little bit about it growing up through the thing. And then on the way, I'm obviously Lynchy. He was my guy we would talk to the most. Um, but I always used to love – I hung out with Butch a lot because he was – I used to play a lot with Adam, so he'd – Scotty, so we would walk a lot of practice rounds. And I loved hanging out with Butch. He was just good energy um, and had a fair bit of wisdom with the game. I think Pete Cowan speaks brilliantly about the game. I don't know if anybody's thought about it as much as Pete. I mean, everybody – there's a lot of people who have thought about golf a lot, you and me included, right? Um, <laughs> Probably anybody right listening to this too. <laughs> <laughs> but Pete's right up there. Um, he's played at a pretty high level, accepted that uh, he wasn't there because of whatever reason. I think he says his, his uh, anger issues were pretty strong. Um, but his, uh, he's incredibly wise about the game and, and no nonsense. You know, he won't sugarcoat it for you. He'll say, this is the way it is. If you do this, you'll be better. If you don't, you won't. Like he's got a really interesting uh, delivery system um yeah yeah he's great a lot of guys look i used to love speaking to all the coaches i think it's fascinating like uh 
how everybody's trying to interpret. It's the same thing, really. I mean, you're just trying to get the club to hit the ball going the right direction, you know what I mean? Basically, and everyone is, interprets that completely differently and explains it differently. And I think it's there's value in talking to lots of different people about it because everyone sees it different and you, you will too, but the more different perspectives you have, maybe the more you can kind of zone in on the way you want to feel about it, you know? Yeah, and every golfer like the way they understand how that person interprets it different, like, and somebody could just explain it a little different and it clicks with you. Yeah, absolutely. Like there was definitely times when Lynchy was like probably banging his head against the wall saying, how can Jeff not get this? How can he not get this? And then I would talk to other, another player or just randomly and someone would be, or I'd look at another player working on something and I would try something. And Lynchy's like, well, that's what I've been trying to get you to do for a year. So why don't you just tell me that? <laughs> you know? So um, we get very tunnel vision stuck in our ways. And as, as I said, I was fairly stubborn about, I knew the answers and no one else did. Um, so you don't open your eyes as much. And I think the more times you, the more, the more you just absorb the game from all sorts of people, I think the more it helps. It's funny you mentioned Justin Rose because I think I think he almost did what Bryson did before Bryson did it because he that how he gained distance was pretty incredible because he went from being, you know, not long to long over the course of a couple of years. Yeah, he wasn't naturally one of the long ones for me or kids. I mean, Charles Howell, when we were kids, he was naturally long. You know, he's always smashed it and hit the ball well. I mean, Scotty and Adam was really naturally long. Sergio was naturally long, but Justin wasn't naturally long, but he's he's made himself a long hitter, which is amazing. Yeah. um, It's hard to do because history has always said that the guys who try to gain length usually lost the plot, right? But recent times, you're right, Justin was one of the forerunners who actually turned himself from a not, he wasn't short, but he wasn't one of those naturally like speedy swingers to a guy who actually smashes it. Yeah. Which yeah, impressive. Yeah, tell us about this player series in Australia. It perked my interest, and I wish it was on TV. I thought it was a really cool concept. And uh, maybe tell us the the concept of the event, and then about the first one that you hosted and played in in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really cool. Um, so the player series events, we thought um, we've been struggling to get the big sort of the, the medium level tour events going in Australia. We've always sort of done it right with the Australian Open, the PGA and the Masters and stuff. Though the Masters has gone by the wayside now. But um, we'd always have two or three big events and then there'd be nothing for anyone to play in except for the guys who'd go overseas. Um, so there was sort of a bit of an idea thrown around. I'd always thought that we should get amateurs and pros playing together more often. Um, and then with the Victorian Open, they've been running the men's and women's tournament concurrently at the same 36-hole venue, and you'd play men's group, women's group, men's group, women's group. And uh, that's been a massive success, having guys, having a guys and girls tournament running at the same time. Um, brought more people in, kind of opened our eyes to the, to the women's game and opened their eyes to our game. Like, it was just a really good thing. So combining the pros and juniors and women, men and women both in the one tournament, we thought, one, this is... At a, not a crazy prize money level, but at a, not, at a, at a level <laughs> um, to create this, let's have guys and girls play the same tournament um, and we adjust the girls' tees 
to match theoretically you know what i mean um as good as we can so only one we're playing for one prize and the men and women are for it and it's pro it's the best pros we can find in the area and 30 or 40 amateurs you know what i mean so the first two days there's a men's pro a woman pro probably and an elite amateur who could win the tournament you know these plus handicap kids these kids who are about to turn pro and then on the weekend after the cut the two pros in the group, they would they had an, like an under eighteen junior tournament on the way thirty six old tournament, and they played in our group. So we had a junior in every one of our groups. Oh my god! So yeah, so the juniors got to play with pros on the weekend in a tournament in contention, play for their own thing, and the men and women got to play their own tournament too. It was um, it was amazing. So the the Australian tour, Graham Scott, who's one of the rules officials, set up the tees for the guys and the girls. And we had Suo, who was probably our most legitimate women player. There. She's top 50 in the world, plays LPGA, a really, really good player. Um, she had a chance to win. She was tied for the lead with two holes to play. And then we had um, Elvis Smiley, who's a young amateur, 19, I think 19, and one of the probably one of the best amateurs in Australia right now. He birdies the last to go in front of Sue. Um, on Sunday and then Brad Kennedy the veteran pro who's won a bunch in Japan and stuff Australian he goes and has like three under in the last four and he ends up winning by a shot so we have a girl about to win then one of the amateurs is about to win and then a pro wins right at the end all in front of the thing and we had the young there was a young 14 or 15 year old girl Molly who was a local girl from Rosebud the course we were playing she, she was tied for the lead in the amateur thing or one behind in the amateur tournament so, and the, and the, the amateur tournament was this, the junior tournament was the same, was girls and guys in the same thing. She stumps it to like three feet in the last in front of her home crowd and makes birdie. To win? And then the kid, no. And then the kid, the 18-year-old kid, um, he comes up the last and holds like a 20-footer to beat her by a shot. Like it was just an amazing thing. Everybody just, um, the experience everyone gained um, was really, really cool. Everyone was really excited. And as I said, we had a, a guy and a girl like Sue, as I said, a world-class player, and Brad Kennedy is a world-class player. They, we got the tees right, so it was a fair tournament, you know what I mean, between guys and girls, so it was really cool. Uh, what was the difference in yardage about? Um, it varied. Look, it was quite a short course, so it was maybe a little bit – I don't know if it would be easier to do on a short course or a harder course, on a longer course. I don't know, but 30 metres, 30 yards, something like that. Um, 10 on the par threes and 30 on a par five, something like that. I don't know, 40 on a par five, something like that. So it was, they were trying to get it. So we hit the same clubs in. Um, and it's, it's, it's a tough one, I think, because there's more variation between the longest women golfers and the shortest than there is between the guys. You know, I yeah, think totally. the, the median band for guys is pretty much everybody, you know, between 290 and 310 or wherever you want to put it. That's kind of where everybody hits it except for a few outliers, you know. Whereas the girls, there's some girls who hit it far. And the difference between the Ann Van Dam and the shortest here on tour is 60 yards or something, 50 yards. You know, there's no, oh, the I guys mean, don't have that spread. MB Park hits it like 230, you know. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, and Van, Van Dam's Dan hitting it 295. Yeah, it's crazy. So there's a big, it would be harder probably to look, and this isn't a thing that you would ever have at a super high level because I think it would be really difficult to get right, as I said, with the elite everybody's. But 
at this level that we're doing it, like sort of Australian pros who aren't really don't have anywhere to go. So at the moment, really good players. I mean, we had some pretty legit players in it. Um, and the the quality of the fields we have there. Next year will be interesting because we're going to do it again. Uh, we're going to try to do as many as we can around Australia, but the next one, we'll do the same tournament again the week before or week after the Vic Open. Hopefully it happens. And we should have almost a full LPGA-style field and um, European Tour kind of guys field. So along with the juniors and the and the kids and stuff, it could be really good. Man, that's cool. I... I- it had to be so much fun to be like that. It had to be unlike any tournament you've ever played in. Oh, it was so cool. It was maybe the coolest tournament. I mean, outside of the, obviously the masters and stuff like that, as far as just of, of how happy people were to be in it and how much fun people had, it was the best tournament I've ever played by far. I mean, the kid we played with on, I was in the last group. I played decently the first two days and it was in the last group on Saturday and played with um, this young kid, Jack, who was no Abel actually? Jack's the kid who won it. Abel and I—I hadn't heard of him. He's like seventeen or eighteen, um, and he was so nervous on the first tee. He's flipping out, right? He's playing in the last group on Saturday of a pro tour event, and there's gallery ropes and there's signs, and it like feels like a big tournament. Um, but by about the sixth or seventh hole, he'd like completely grown up as a golfer, and he just played unbelievable. It was unbelievable just to see the experience he got out of one day that we never had a chance. No one gets a chance to do this, you know, play behind the inside the ropes on the weekend with pros, but it's not completely serious because you're not actually in the tournament, but you actually get to see what they do and get the feeling of being there. Um, it was, you know, it was incredible. It was great. I mean, although we had parents who were like, I mean, they were coming up just, just gushing about how like good this was for their kids. And um, yeah, it was amazing. It was really cool. That's as you know, when I think back to playing golf as a junior golfer, I would, this hat, that is probably where this event does the most good is for those juniors. Because like every time you play at a higher level, it's like a whole new experience and you get that out of body, uncomfortable experience. And this one had to be like, it, it probably like felt like jumping three levels going from high school to like a graduate school class for these kids. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was and you can't buy experience like that. I mean, it's never been there, this sort of thing. You know, I mean, only if any of these kids kind of get lucky enough and have that crazy week where they Monday qualify into the Australian Open or something and happen to play well and sort of like it, there's a lot of ifs and buts about getting an experience like that. But if 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 you can provide that experience, it was just, um, yeah, they all got better that week for sure. Isn't and it- probably want to do it more, you know, like the motivation is like, wow, this is fun. There's people actually watching me play and there's Pro V1s on the range and there's like, I mean, this is like nice, you know, my motivation. What do you think about the idea of that, this type of product for golf at a bigger scale? When you think about the value prop of of this maybe just say it happened on the PGA tour with LPGA tour and then junior golfers is that, you know, we're, we're, we've started to see it with just the ANWA, the, the Augusta national women's amateur, like, uh, Fossey and cup Joe, the two girls that duked it out on the final day, they were all, all of a sudden known 
commodities when they turn pro. Like people, like you know, casual golfers know who they are, and it's like this has the opportunity to like. I think one of the toughest things for golf is like they make their chops off off guys like Tiger and Phil and Ernie and who are around for 20 years is like it, it almost extends it it builds a brand of some of these like up and coming kids earlier you know in the process if if the right kids are there absolutely yeah i think it works on i don't think it works on an like an important tournament mm-hmm. you know what i mean i agree but i think it but i think it really works i mean it would be amazing because i mean you could do it in such a bigger scale in the u.s you know what i mean um it's just more money involved. So you could just, I don't know, you could do it on a bigger scale, but it was just, I just, it's look, it's everything that golf, at least in Australia and the, the kind of the countries that were influenced by say the RNA. Um, but still it's the, the feeling is still in the U S that amateurs and pros have always been kept far apart and men and women have always been kept far apart. There's always been like almost like four different sort of, areas of golf it's like why can't we all just play in the same thing it's actually a better product when we're all in the same place you know um and the junior thing like yeah you just can't one it's going to make them want to do it more two like you say it builds their brand three it makes everybody better it's it's better to watch it was so interesting like when i finished three or four groups to watch the last few groups come in and watch the juniors play with the pros on the last few holes and stuff and it was just more interesting to watch than three guys who just hit perfect shots all the way in and have 20 footers, you know what I mean? Or whatever. I mean, the two is great. I'm not saying that, but it was just something that you didn't see every day. So it was more interesting to see how's the girls, how do the girls play this hole? How do the kids play this hole? What's this pro going to, what's this experienced pro going to feel like? He's probably feeling pressure because his kids beating him and like, yeah, you know, like it was just, it's just, there was a lot of elements and maybe every week it wouldn't be the same as a one-off, but I feel like, it's a format that would work anywhere, you know, and I think everyone would buy in, you know, I think golf as a sport can buy into this sort of model because everybody wins here, you know? It's funny to just, this is like an anecdotal thing that happened to me in the winter. Um, when the, the father son, I put the father son on my TV, my wife, like doesn't care about golf at all. Like she, she walks by the TV with golf on all the time and never stops, never asks what's going on. And then there's like, there's Charlie Woods and there's Coocher's kid. And she like stops dead in her track. She's like, what's, what's this? I'm like, Oh, this yeah. is the father's son. And she's like, how old are these kids? And I was like, I, oh, they're like 11, 12, 13, some of them are 17. And she's like, this is so cool. Like she sat down and started watching golf because of the kids, I think, you know, like, and I think it brings, it's, it gives you a different feel too. Like, and it it attracts different audiences and here's like, you know, my wife, it's like, it just was really interesting to me that like, she was all of a sudden enthralled in this event that like of all the events that I watched, like I had about the least amount of interest in, you know, was the one that interests her the most. And I think that's the other where you, these different events have the ability to engage different types of fans. It's not like a one box fits all type proposition that everybody seems to be going for. It's like this type of event is compelling to a lot of different types of people. I think too, yeah, because there's going to be people who are at Rosebud, the tournament uh, we just played, 
who are going to now look in the paper or on the internet or wherever they do and follow these kids. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that kid's doing. We saw at Rosebud. I wonder how that girl's doing at Birdie the Last. And they're going to look for their name and they're going to get lifelong fans, maybe, potentially, out of being exposed at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's... Uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoy it. It was better than we ever imagined, actually. Um, yeah. I get messages every once in a while from listeners or readers who tell me stories about, like, going to see, like, what, one that pops into my mind is, like, this this couple went and watched uh, a random tournament. They happened to be in Spain when the European tour was there, and they remember walking. They were the only people following, Lee, like, an eight or 19-year-old Lee Westwood. And like, of course, like he chatted them up and they'll like, the, the note was basically like, we've been Lee Westwood fans for our entire lives. Like, and that's the thing that the, with the kids and getting fan, golf fans, like these are just golf nuts who are in Spain for some trip and we're like, oh, we're going to go watch this European tour event. And sure enough, they, they stumble into following a random group and they become a lifelong fan of, of a golfer. And that's how people become fans of golfers. I think that's one of the things that's tough. It's not like I'm not, you know, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan because I'm from Chicago, but like becoming a fan of a golfer, you have to kind of have a reason. And I grew up a fan of Luke Donald because I caddied for Luke Donald when I was 15 years old, you know, but like how else do you become a fan of a golfer? Yeah, you're right. I mean, my parents had the same story. They went to the Westlake Classic in Adelaide in 1976 and saw this blonde-haired kid who just seemed to be more special than the rest and watched him play 72 holes, and he won, and there he was, Greg Norman. Like, And they were lifelong Greg Norman fans because they saw him before. You know, They saw him as a kid and that small scale, and he probably said hi across the ropes or something. It was like, yeah, it was uh, – you're right, absolutely. You have a connection with a player like that, you follow, you know, and this is just opening up. As you said, This I didn't even think about this would get more – just we get a different group of people watching it, but it would, um, especially with the kids involved and the the guys and the girls and kids involved all sort of battling it out under that same sort of environment that you normally kind of, you're only used to seeing like PGA Tour players and the 72-hole stroke play thing, like that thing that we see 51 weeks a year. Something different always captures our interest and this has got something for more people to watch. Yeah. It is such a cool event. When so? When's the next one? Next year? Uh, there's one in. Well, yeah, we're going to do that one every year at the same place. But we're going to try to get. I say we. The tour down here. The, the one I'm going to help out with is the one we just had. Uh, there's they're putting one on in Sydney at Bonnie Doon in March. That's a good course. We'll see right? how that goes. Bonnie Doon's good. Yeah, redone by OCM. Hey. Um, um, yeah, it's good. It's nice. It's right next to the lakes. It's all sand. It's a pretty cool place. Um, really cool place. So that'll we'll see how that goes. I think the format will be really. It'll be good, and I think it'll. We should be able to get a few running in Australia at least. I said to complement that of the big tournaments we've got, and to give. What's happened with these juniors these days, the kids, is that at least in Australia, the world amateur golf ranking has become their obsession. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to get high up on that for whatever it is, scholarships or like sponsorship when they turn pro and invites and stuff. And so it works just like the, a little bit like the pro rankings. And there's certain situations where if you play less, you get more points. You know, you help your ranking. You don't want to play weak events, you know, to dilute your scores. So they're all not playing enough tournaments, these kids. 
And the Australian kids are all unbelievably good golfers. But then when they turn pro, it seems like they're just a little bit underdone. And so the more of these things we can get, I think the better, because it won't go into their world amateur golf ranking, hopefully. Um, and they'll get all that the playing experience without sort of messing it up. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine when I was young, I played every tournament that, that you could find an entry form for. You know, it didn't matter where I was doing I was going at the moment they're they're scheduling themselves as their kids and I'm just not quite sure I like that I'd rather them just be playing a lot more so let's give them more stuff to play in so even if they they win like a lower level event it can hurt them or finish Uh, I don't know I I haven't studied the details of the system Uh but I know that maybe only a win would help you know and we're talking about the kids who are like right up the top I mean there's been a few um, but they really want to be in that top three or four in the world amateur rankings. And we've had a couple in that area that won't play reasonably big events because on a world scale, they're small points. And if they don't win, they'll hurt their rankings and stuff. Yeah. It's amazing crazy. at an amateur level that we're doing that, you know, it's crazy. Oh, but we don't have the college, we don't have the college tournaments, which don't count for that. I don't think, do they? Or do they? I think they do count, but they're, oh, they do? you know, okay. like, I think that's where a kid... But they're forced to play them. They have to play them, yeah. you know, which is, which is the good thing, which is why the U.S. kids are doing the best, apart from the U.S. having the most good golfers, is that they're the, that competitive environment where they just all they do is play against each other or they're playing for their spot on the team each week and then they're playing and then they just, they've got... They're always playing to have a good score today, like I said. They're not... You know what I mean? Um, when you have six months between tournaments... You you get it. You can get off track. They didn't. They don't have a, a mini tour down there, really. Is there? Is there like, or is it mostly PGA driven? We we don't have any. It's all PGA driven, and we have COVID's messed the whole thing up because mm-hmm. uh, we cancelled our big events last year. But yeah, we have ten or twelve or fifteen kind of really small events, and then we have two or three, four big ones in a normal year. Um, and they're all run by the tour. They're all kind of on the same money list. Um, but yeah, it's not what it was 25 years ago, this tour, but we don't have Greg Norman as number one and uh, the Pied Piper as well. Um, and this, the Australian football and the, the tennis that's on at the moment and the Grand Prix and that, that takes a lot of the sponsorship money. But um, yeah. And, and the big, the tours expansion has to have hurt too. Like where the PGA tour calendar, instead of being 30, 30 weeks is now 50 weeks, you know? Yeah, we've been date squeezed, especially, yeah, with um, with the fall getting used so heavily by Europe and the US now that that's kind of when we could sit in, you know, November, December, um, and we'd have a few in January, but with Kapalua starting in January 1st, basically, and then not finishing till the middle of December, um, any Australian who's playing a foreign tour has a difficult time coming to play back here. And then on top of that, you're never going to get any extra players because they've all just done their grind for the race to Dubai or their grind through the fall series and they've travelled around the world. The last thing they want to do is put another two weeks in Australia on the other side of the world in. So it's difficult date-wise for sure. But I don't know. I mean, the US has also made people think that a tournament ending less than four or five million is not a real tournament anymore either, you know. so. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's, a, it's unbelievable. It's like, a, this is a good thing, but it's definitely made it difficult for Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and Japan and other countries that, like, it's just hard to keep up. It's it's funny because you see, like, guys that get into some random fields that haven't played. You know, you, every 
seemingly every couple of weeks, there's like, you're like, oh God, how did this guy get in this field? And it's like some career money exemption and people will be like, oh, why is he even playing? He hasn't played in five years. It's like, who wouldn't want to go play for $7 million? Like, it's like, you know, who's hey, not doing that, right? Who's doing like, that? Hey, do you want to play golf for four, four days and the purse is $7 million? Like, it's like, well, maybe I'll play a couple of good rounds and I'll make, you know, a hundred grand. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a juggernaut. The, the tour is so, uh, the tour being PGA tour, Ponavidra, it's just an amazing organization. It's incredible what they've done. I mean, it's just that they've had Tiger Woods and, uh, and then the second generation after Tiger has been so good, you know, the Ricky and the Jordan and the Brooks and the Dustin and it's JT. It's like a very lovable generation of players, you know, mm-hmm. likable. It's just incredible. That's that's the interesting thing that you brought up with Norman becoming the biggest player in the game. Like it was Norman, Faldo, Sevi for an era. And then you think about when you read back about the early 90s, you know, American golf was not in a good place. Like they didn't have a superstar, really. You know, they had Freddie, but he never lived up to what it what he could be. Davis Love never won as much as people thought. And it was like the end of the Watson Nicholas era. There was in until Tiger came along and really, you know, Phil was becoming that star. All the big names in golf were international. And the and you know, then you look at like Westies era and Monty and and Sergio, like the European tour was really a, a good foil for the PGA tour for a while. And then it Tiger just ruined ended everything. <laughs> yeah, not on purpose. It's probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, but he certainly helped be the catalyst for like the, the big like you said, the rebirth of American, great American professionals. I mean, they're not they're all been great, right? Through that era. You we're picking we're picking like the best in the world. Yeah, right? nitpick yeah. total nitpicks here. <laughs> but I mean, look at the list of players now. I mean, Dustin Brooks, Justin, I mean JT, Jordan, Ricky, and I'm missing a bunch, I'm sure. Um, just long term top ten player in the world level players, you know. Um the sort of players we're talking about. Yeah, it's a great... And I'll tell you, Australia, we had 20... More than 20 players on the PGA Tour in the early 2000s. I guarantee you, most of that is because we all got excited about golf because of the shark. You know what I mean? The influence of these, like, legendary players um, is immeasurable, I think. Like, it's really, really big. Look at Gary Player, 20, 15 years later, 20 years later, you got Ernie Els and Ratif Goosen and stuff. And then... Those guys inspire Schwartzel and Emmelman and all that. It's like it, they, they, these legends 10 or 15 years later inspire, and Tiger did that for a, the whole world, but he certainly did it for the American kids, you know, the JTs and the Jordans and the Rory. I mean, Rory's obviously a big Tiger fan. Like, um, yeah. That's totally the way to look at it, too, is looking 10 to 15, 15 to 10 to 20 years after and seeing where – they stack up like the it i just wish the owgr went back further you know like it only goes back to yeah, yeah, yeah. like you could look at the McCormick rankings but that's the way to look at it is like the impact of having number one player in the world on a country's golf like a, a true legend it's got to be it you're i never yeah the australia like that you're totally right because like you know there aren't as even there's still a lot of great aussies but like there aren't quite as many. Yeah. The influence is huge. I'm, I, I, it's a massive 
massive influence. You just can't. I mean, Peter Costas is a very wise man about golf back at the back of the range at Westbrook one day. He's like, look, everyone was always trying to copy and follow the best player in the world at the time. He goes, everyone in the 60s was trying to be Jack. Everyone in the 70s was trying to be Jack. Everyone in the 80s was trying to be Watson or Norman or Seve or something. And then everybody's trying to be Tiger. The, the, those guys who are number one dragged the standard of the sport along, you know, and they inspire kids to be like that. And I think the more magnetic and the better they are, the more like Greg Norman or Tiger Woods or Arnold Palmer they are, the more influence they have. Um, and especially from a small country like Australia or South Africa or even the UK, England, I mean, Faldo, I think Jacqueline was a massive influence on guys like Faldo and then Faldo inspired Luke and Justin and Paul Casey and those guys are going to inspire like the next generations, you know. So I think uh, it's very important having those uh, charismatic leaders of the sport, I think. Not very important. It's very influential, I think. It changes the way the game is played by people. And- History, golf history is so cool. I, I love reading. That's something that the quarantine kind of led me down was reading all about all those old school players that I never got to watch. It's it's just amazing to read about how much Europe changed from those five guys, um, you know, Seve and Seve and uh, Faldo, Lange, 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 Lyle and Woozy. You yeah, ever hang incredible. out with Woozy? Uh, a little bit, way back. Um, back in Europe, he was still playing. I played with him a few times when I was my first couple of years in Europe. Um, played a practice game with him at the Masters a couple of times. Played the par three with him at the Masters. He's a, he's a legend. So small, like five foot four. But yeah, one of my favorite golf swings ever. Ever. Fantastic. That that's the guy I want to have a have a sit down and have a few beers with of all the all the European tour guys. Yeah, he's an experienced man in the pub for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Old school. Um, obviously, big news in, in America a couple weeks ago. What What is your take? I, I assume you saw what happened with Patrick Reed. You got any thoughts on that? What do you like? Everybody's kind of been perplexed. I. It was a weird situation, you know what happened, and I. Uh, the thing that rattled me, and like I couldn't understand why he picked the ball up and moved it, you know? Yeah, for me, I'm with you. I mean, I don't understand. It was a very gray area, and he probably didn't actually break a rule. Yes, that's how I kind of feel. Right. But it's certainly not in the spirit of the game the way I've always played it, um, and most of the people I've ever played with. Generally, if you're going to touch your ball – you're getting your guys over there to say, hey, guys, I just got to check this. You know what I mean? Like, fair enough. We'll, we'll let him say that the the marshals, God bless marshals, they make golf tournaments better, but they don't always see it how it happens. And if she said it bounced, you can't take a marshal's word for it usually anyway. Um, he If he thought it bounced and he was doing it, and he thinks that's the way you're supposed to do it, then I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. But nobody I know who I've ever played with would pick the ball up without getting people over there. Nobody. Like and, nobody. And not so put it back. The reason why right? the, that's that's the reason why the locker yeah, that's the reason why the locker room flares up. One, because of what happened uh back in the Bahamas. That was pretty blatant and nobody really liked watching that. So his track record didn't help him. And two Nobody on tour, nobody in the locker room would do that. Like without their guy, without at least saying, "Hey guys, I'm going to check if this is plugged. Come over and check it out," or getting the official. Nobody puts their hand on the ball like that. So I think it was poorly. Uh, 
<laughs> poorly handled by himself. And I don't understand why the tour is uh, so apt to defend, you know what I mean, poor behavior. Like, you know what I mean? It's just not the right way. To, whether it's whether you're whatever line you want to, the C word I'm not going to put on it for that actual incident, but it was not the right way to do it. And he should know that because everyone on tour knows that's not the right way to do it. Yeah, that's that's what I keep I, I'm like I don't know why they go out of their way to defend what he, you know that's where I kind of like am perplexed and especially like I don't think he he didn't necessarily do anything wrong like and there's no evidence that like proves that it didn't embed like people say well it bounced they couldn't have embedded but like you know what like we nobody saw it right but like the fact that he picked the ball up and then you know, if I'm going to check a ball and I'm going to call an official over, I'm putting the ball right back to where it was, you know? It's, yeah. it's like, I don't know why the ball was eight feet away. Like, I've never seen that happen before. But I don't it's, I just, where I get with this all the time, and I don't know if, like, golf is this game of honor, right? But we're play, you're playing for millions of dollars. And if Patrick Reed, I just, he's, everybody's looking to take it. Like, it's kind of like, we see it with Kuchar last year. Like, everybody's trying, like, you're always trying to get an advantageous drop. Like, that's just kind of like, you're out there, like, anybody that's played tournament golf knows, like, you're trying to get, you know, drops in certain situations. And, and But, like, there needs to be, like, they can't have that kind of stuff happen because it just brings into, like, doubt about the whole thing, you know? The game, yeah, there's two things. One, I think a normal reaction, I think people don't like his defiance either. I think people react to the defiance. If he came up and said, oh, did I do that? Oh, sorry. I thought that was the way you're supposed to do it. I'll do it different next time. Everyone would be like, oh, that's all right. But he's like, no, I did it right. I did it. He just is so defiant that people don't like that attitude. And I think the defiance Um I actually get a lot. I, I think Patrick's fine. I just don't understand why he can't just say, look, sorry, I messed that up. I'll go on. I mean, it wasn't cheating, but if you want me to do it a different way, I'll do it a different way. And, and on you go. Um, but the game, to your big, the bigger point is the game only functions. It does not function as a sport. You can't have a rules official and a camera on every player. And even beyond that, all golf, we all trust that the people we play for 20 on the weekend or the people we just have fun with or any time we're playing golf, we are trusting that they're hitting the ball from where it lies and they're playing under the same rules as us because they're on the other side of the fairway on, and in a normal tournament on different holes spread all over the golf course. Everybody has to buy into this culture of honour. Otherwise, the game doesn't ceases to function as a sport. It just doesn't work. Um, that's why it's important. Uh, so, I yeah, I'm... It just—it's a bad It's a bad, exa- it's a bad uh, example on TV, and I'm kind of glad that most people seem to flare up about it. Because, as I said, I'm not going to say he did anything wrong, but the way he did it was not the way everyone else in the locker room would have done that sort of situation, or not most. And it's—it's just—he should know better. He should know better. You go on tour, you know how to do things. You, we all know how to take drops. You know what I mean? And the process involved, and he just blatantly did it a different way yeah it's and it's just like it's kind of like media like i if if somebody reports something you cite them you know (laughs) it'd be like saying like oh you know like try and scoop somebody's story break 
you know, like, and, you know, act like it's your story break when they did it. You know, it's like nobody does that. It's like a, a real media person. I, I, I mean, and there, you could go all different directions with that. But the other thing about it is I like want to love watching Patrick Reed play golf. Because it's so, he plays such a drastically different style than everybody else in the top 15 in the world. You know? It's extraordinary that he's so freaking good when he, like, doesn't play the way the other guys play. No, he plays so good. He's such a good golfer. I'm a big fan of his golf. Like, I like how he plays. I like how hard he works. I like, I mean, he's one of the coolest to watch on Sunday and the last night I was in the efforts in. He's just brilliant. And watching the Ryder Cups and stuff, I mean, fantastic. What entertainment. Like a brilliant golfer. And he doesn't need – he was clearly going to win that tournament regardless whether he got an advantage in that situation or not. It doesn't really matter. He's winning by five. Like he's an unbelievable player. Um, It's sad that he's tarnished like that, you know, because he's worthy of attention because he's that good. Yeah, because that's like the thing. Like everybody talks about like how – there's such a lack of style stylistic difference in golf today. And it's like, this is the guy, <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the guy that's different. And it's just like, why, why does this have to be, why do you have to keep doing this stuff? Like I want to yeah. enjoy watching you play golf, but it just makes, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. Um, I'm so it's, a a it's a bit of a McEnroe thing though, right? He kind of almost feeds off people being mad at him. Oh yeah. Like, it seems to only happen when he's playing great, you know? I mean, I just can't believe, you know, like you think about the round he played on Sunday, the day after all that stuff happening. And it's like, how many guys could deal with all like every the entire golf world talking about you and then go out and shoot, you know, and just dust everybody on Sunday? I'd have trouble leaving my hotel room (laughs) like in that same scenario. You know, if everyone thought I'd done that. I don't, yeah, it would be hard work. Um, so everyone's built different, right? And he's like, if more people will look on, watch on Sunday to see like it's what's going to happen, then it's good. You know what I mean? Even if it's a good or a bad thing. It's like the Howard Stern. They, they turn on because they want to hear what he says next, whether it's good or bad. You know, they all listen. I mean, Patrick might be helped like that a little bit. People just want to see what's going to happen. So they watch. So that's a good thing, I guess. But great it's a bad thing. If, yeah, it's a bad thing. I mean, that's the, yeah, the media side of it but it's a bad thing if people think that golf is about trying to get away with one like that headspace of trying to get away with one it just doesn't work in golf it just the sport just doesn't work unless everybody's buys into the kind of honor of the whole thing hey so big news from the usga i don't know if it's really news it's just kind of like a they're just gonna look at things closer um and they're it seems like they're pretty defiant that there is a distance issue in golf and something needs to be addressed. Uh, what were your thoughts on the USGA rollback talk? Yeah, it was a bit more. The last, what, two or three years, we've had the distance inside report that we've all got excited about. Um, one way or the other, excited. And then uh, this one's, I guess, a little bit more of a progression from that, like kind of more specific and stuff, what they're looking at and stuff. I don't know. I just think uh, clearly I think everybody understands that if the best players in the world are hitting lob wedges into par fives, it doesn't work. Like, you know, if everyone's just going over the corner on 13 at Augusta and hitting a wedge into the green, which is, which will eventually happen um, unchecked, then that doesn't work. 
also, I think a lot of people acknowledge like just a massive step back. Uh, a massive step back is fraught with all sorts of potholes and rabbit holes, and it's it's a scary thing. I think it's um, it's an interesting time in the game. I said I think I think there's too much focus on length. I don't think length. I don't think length by itself is really the issue. I just think it's easy to hit it straight and long, you know? Well, there's two sides to this. I think when you've got the richest club in the world spending like tens of millions of dollars to buy real estate to just preserve their hole, I don't know if that's, Augusta might be able to do it, but every course in the world can't do that. So at some point, a ball going 350, 360, 370, wherever it's going to go, is too far for all the golf courses. It's just too far. Um, what you do about that, I don't know. As I said, I think the beauty of the game is the, is the balance um, between the golf course being the challenge and the equipment being the challenge. You know, I'm less about the length and more about I'd like to see at least pros clubs be a little bit more difficult to use. Um, so then you wouldn't make, need to make the course quite so difficult because I think when you when when the average player goes and plays Bethpage Black, I mean they're loving it because it's it's an experience and it's Bethpage Black. But really, it's not a fun way for the average guy to play because it's not a fun way for pros to play unless you hit it at three fifty in the air. You know what I mean? So I don't know really what I'm saying here is, a, but but what I'm I like I like golf. I feel like golf for me at least is the best when the course is a challenge, but not out and out difficult. And the golf clubs to use are a challenge, but not impossible. You know what I mean? There's that balance between sort of easy course and hard equipment and, or hard course and easy equipment. I think that's got to stay, there's got to be that sort of balance in there. And I think that's the way you can kind of keep the long and the short of golf together. I don't know if any of that made sense. Um, but I think while everybody obsessed, the, 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 the reports and these focuses is all about length. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if out and out length is really the issue in the, the, how these guys or how everybody can hit it so far. I mean, if you go back to Greg Norman's days or Jack Nicholas's days or Watson's days or Seve, all these guys, they all out and Arnold, they all outpowered everybody. They hit it miles, you know what I mean, as a few bros have brought up. But it was very difficult to do that. And they were the only guys who could because if you missed the sweet spot, the ball went sideways. So only the very, very elite now the drivers are so good that everybody can go at it as hard as they can and get a reasonable result without the extra genius that those other guys had. So I think uh, well, I don't hate the length. I hate that it seems to be easier to hit it straight and long. It's, it's actually the safest club in the bag now, driver. Um, and I don't know. That's a, that, that's a good thing because the drivers are great, right? But I think you can lose the balance of the game a little bit when it's like that. Yeah, I think, and it, obviously, I think there's there's something to be said. Like every game evolves. Like every in the NBA, more players shoot threes now than ever before, and from further away than ever before. Like the really great ones can sh- shoot threes from forever. Like in the NFL guys throw the ball and there's more quarterbacks that throw the ball well than ever before. But the thing that I think with golf that makes it tough is, and I, I, and part of me sympathizes a little bit with the players and the really great players is that 
there's a cloud of, is this the athlete or is this the equipment? You know, is the equipment so good that this athlete is so good? And I think that's unfair to guys like DJ or Rory or even Bryson. Like Bryson's unbelievable golfer. Like I think you put any club in his hand, he's going to figure it out and he's going to hit it solid. And I think it's unfair that there's this skepticism that is cast over them because of equipment, like in, in having a little bit more challenge in order to hit it. it. Like you said, the distance is one thing, but the, the ease to keep it on the planet is another thing, you know? Yeah. For me, it doesn't come down to what's look. I mean, from a personal preference, like if we pick a hole that we all know, like 13 of the masters and the way everyone's going to end up playing it is just hitting this big straight high bomb over the corner and the old school way would be to try to, you really had, you, st- you thought about it for two or three holes about how I'm going to hit this drawer around the corner and i got to draw it. <laughs> to me, it's more fun to hit the shape around the corner than it is to hit the big high straight bomb. So regardless of how, what clubs people hit in or any of that, to me, the game is more enjoyable slightly a different way than it is now. It's an enjoyable to hit the ball a long way and hit it straight and to smash driver and to, like, to play it. That's an enjoyable thing too, but it's more enjoyable for me, when there's more of a, there's more than just one way to skin a cat. I mean, I think golf has become pro golf, at least at the elite level, there's, there's becoming one way to play. And I think golf is more interesting when there are more ways to play. And I don't think, I think length is, should be a big part of game. I think the people who like Dustin and Rory should have a big advantage and Bryson for how far they hit it and how straight they hit it. I actually think they're getting shortchanged. I agree with that. Bit. You know, a little bit. I think the elite guys are actually getting a little shortchanged, and I think I don't. I wouldn't even begin to know how to tweak equipment to make that happen. But there are a hundred legitimately great drivers of the ball on tour these days, maybe more. You know, when I first got on twenty years ago, there was six, and like forty years ago, there was two. You know, so. Is that good or bad? That is certainly people are getting better, as you say, but I think there would be more separation of the top 10 or 20 or 30, which might make for more interesting viewing. It might not. I don't know. Um, I watched a, a pra- uh, it was maybe a first round or a practice round last time the BMW was at Conway. And I, I, watched, I watched Rory and he was playing with Ali Schneiderjans, who's a very good player, right? And I watched them play almost the entire round. And I just, I saw like Ali Schneiderjans hit, you know, he hitting it right around Rory like all day. A couple times he's 15 yards past him. They're both hitting driver. And I just thought to myself, I was like, in what world, what, like, why is Ali Schneiderjans, who's like now, no, no slight, this is not meant to be a drive by shooting of Ali Schneiderjans, but like, he doesn't have a card now, and it's like, how is he even in the same ballpark of Rory off the tee every hole? Like, it just was like kind of like an eye-opener to me, and this was three or four years ago, and I just was like, that's where I started to think, like, God, Rory's the most shortchanged of anybody out of this. Yeah, he's the Greg Norman of our generation, maybe. You know, he would have been pretty special with the old stuff. Um but so would Dustin. There's more of them now, I think. And as I said, that goes back to, like, as I said, Track more. Track man, too. 
Yeah, and, and that whole Tiger influence, and everyone grew up seeing a higher level. You know, he came, he made length really cool too, and like it was. I mean, there's there's so much goes into this. That's why I don't think you can narrow it down to one little issue. Um, I like evolution. Like you, you used the word evolution, golf evolves, and I like it's great that it's evolved from leather stuffed balls <laughs> to like like graphite shafts and titanium, right? I mean, it's great. It's part of the coolness of the game, right? Um, amazingly, like, but there's um, there's a balance that needs to be there, you know? Like the argument that people enjoy golf more now because the equipment's like that's completely false because you're saying that the golf, the members of Conway Farms in 1975, that probably wasn't even there, the members of Madonna in 1975 didn't enjoy golf then. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't use, they loved it. That's why they played it. And that's why golf was a big sport. So you, the argument that it's enjoyed more now than before is false. Now, if you move the equipment back a little bit, maybe like people wouldn't like going back to wind up windows on their car. You know, once you've got power windows, you like power windows, right? Um, <laughs> Good so enough, there's, <laughs> there's another element to it. but And it's nice of the evolution. It just seems like the biggest problem is that we're sitting here and there's 50 podcasts going on in the, every week of talking about this very issue. Everyone's only focused on this one thing and they're maybe not noticing other stuff. You know, I think that's a side thing that's not good. And it's, as I said, I think the focus is way too much on length. I think hybrids have changed professional golf so much more than the length we had. It's incredible. It's not even close. I mean, hitting it 220 in the air, 230 in the air, 20 or 30 years ago was only for the very, very, very elite of the elite, you know. Now, everybody hits a 240 in the air out of the rough, you know. Like, it's it's that that's changed it more. So, you, I don't know how you even begin to address issues like that. I think if you just made the ball go small, shorter, say, if that was what someone wanted to do, I don't think you fix what I think is not fix. You don't really change much. You know, as I said, I think the 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 beauty of the game is that kind of that balance between it's really just hard to hit a golf shot and the, the the challenge that the golf course presents you. And I think that's why it's so enduring. You know, but if it's all about a really hard golf course, impossible shots everywhere, but with equipment that you can maybe hit them, there's that's one end of the spectrum, and the other end of the spectrum is golf equipment that's impossible to use, and of course it's got no hazards on it at all. There's somewhere in the middle that's the best, right? Um, and I think you've got we've got to sort of find that middle ground. I don't know. Are we there at the moment? I don't know. I mean, if you look at all golf outside of the PGA Tour or the top one percent, golf's probably great. You know what I mean? The trouble is that top one percent has such a massive influence on the way people set their courses up and the way people try to play golf that it's getting a lot of attention. Yeah. And perfect segue here. You know, so you just got hired, uh, you, Mike Cocking, Ashley Mead, just got hired for Medina's master plan. You know, like, that's like a perfect golf, a, a perfect example of golf course that is, is kind of in that same, like Augusta National buying a property. Like Medina can't buy a property. And, you know, it's a golf course that, History has been rich with major championships, and what do you do in this in this landscape? But I'm interested to hear about getting the project and what you're excited about, and uh, any any early thoughts about that. 
Yeah. Well, firstly, it's super exciting. I mean, what a job. I mean, that's kind of the one of the dreamiest jobs that we could get. Um, obviously, one of America's most famous courses, tons of majors, Ryder Cups, um, future President's Cup. Um, yeah, so incredibly excited. I mean, getting the job was, it was remote. I mean, normally because of the COVID thing, normally we would be over, we would walk the course, we would come up with all sorts of stuff and meet with the board. And this stuff was all sort of remote internet research. The, the boys were picking my brain on my experience there. The 06 PGA was my real experience there. Um, with Tiger and Phil. With Tiger and Phil first two days. Yeah, that's my, my biggest ever draw. So I remember it pretty vividly. Um, that was a crazy day, um, crazy two days, unbelievable. But so, yeah, the boys dug up all the information, actually found some historical photos and stuff that Madonna didn't even have, you know, uh, came up with a pretty good thing, did all the proposals over Zoom meetings and stuff, and it was, uh, yeah, it worked. It's great. We're so excited, really excited. Can't wait to get there. Um, and as far as what do you do, I think a trigger for Madonna was – JT shooting 27 or 28 under a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Um, yeah. When they presented what they thought was a super difficult test. Um, and I think it was uh, just a, like not a, just a bit of an, uh, I don't even know, I'm not losing the word, but a sign that long and soft with perfect greens, tour guys are going to go low. You can't make it too long and rough doesn't really matter and if it's soft and the greens are rolling good, people are going to hold putts. I think a bit of if you can find a way to get it a bit firmer, you know, and maybe uh, take length out of it a little bit. If you've got it a little bit firmer, there's some dog legs there. There's quite a lot of undulation. It's a great property. If you can get the ball bouncing a little bit, all of a sudden driver over the corner runs through into the trees, you know, so you've got to maybe shape it around the corner and do some stuff like that. I think that's the only way to do it without being able to get long, you know. It's a cool place, though. What a property. It's an unbelievable. It's the be- one of the best properties for golf in Chicago. And that the thing, I was at that event, and the thing that, like, was so jarring, having played there a handful of times, and, like, it's not, it's not an easy place to play golf, like, regardless of, you know, for anybody. But you, you're, look, you're walking in the rough. You're just, like, it was unbelievable how thick the rough was. And it just, it had seemingly no no impact at all and obviously the weather they got handed was brutal it it just dumped rain but it was it's kind of and i think that event in a way obviously i think it it impacted medina's future but i think it impacted a lot of golf courses like medina's future they looked at that and were, were like oh wow like we something you know there's a we need to present a different type of test because that old test that worked for, you know, 50 years and was considered the way to test players changed. You know, there, there was a shift that week because it was nuts. Yeah. I mean, I think the focus is, again, another byproduct that's probably not great about everyone obsessing about length is, uh, it f- makes the setups, everyone focuses on length. So they make them soft, they make them long, narrow. Um, and if it's soft with good surf, a, a soft course with good greens, unless it's like outrageously impossible, like Beth Page, and you just ring every green with bunkers and rough, um, guys are going to go low. Two guys are going to go low. The perfect example this week, the Riviera, Riviera on paper and on the ground, 
in the same condition as Madonna, the guys would shoot in the 20s every time. But it's got West Coast greens, which uh, the power greens will generally in the afternoon get bumpy. They're firm, bumpy, and very slopey. So you would argue that by the end of the day, they're kind of poor. It's a poor surface, but firm. Whereas Madonna is a perfect surface, but soft. You know, I mean, Madonna's probably 500 meters long, 500 yards longer or more. Mm-hmm. But Riv, it's just got real challenge around the greens. They're, re- they're firm and they're no guarantees from 20 feet, like putting off three feet even. Um, and they'll be, single di- they'll be single digits of 12 or 13 under par or in Riviera or something like that every single year. It presents a massive challenge with really no rough, um, but just a bit of a bounce on the green and slope. Less think, interesting uh, ground too. Yeah, I mean, look, Rivs are—it's one of the probably the best golf course in the world on a bad piece of land, right? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's an unbelievably. I'm not taking anything away from Riviera, but if you looked at the numbers on paper and walked walked each course, you would all predict people would shoot lower scores at Rivs than they would at Madonna. Madonna looks a big grand test with some big shots over the water and big up and down hills. It's like Rivs seems like oh yeah, I could get my way around here, but it's completely different. And I think it's mostly because it's firm. Um, and the greens are a real challenge. Uh, and you can't really overpower Riv because the challenge is all up at the green end of the course. So I think um, perfect greens that are soft, two guys will go low. But just firm firm conditions, I think, is really the only way. And as I said, they Madonna that year had you, – sometimes you just don't have a chance, right? When it wants to rain in Chicago, it rains in Chicago, right? Um, there's not much you can do about that. But um, – yeah, I think firmness. I mean, you can't have bad greens, and I'm not saying Riviera are bad greens at all. But those West Coast greens, um, I think golf is interesting when you get that that afternoon green effect. You know, like the greens is almost too good now. They're so perfect, and if they're soft, you can hit it on the green from anywhere. So then your decision off the tee is less important because you can miss it right or left and still hit it close. But if it's firm, you can only be on one side of the fairway or the other. You know, I think. Uh, do you see how they changed up the setup mid tournament at Pebble a little bit? With uh, they used the different the right tee on ten, the three ninety five or three fifty three sixty tee on ten, and then they uh, they made five like one thirty one day, and then they did uh, they moved the tee way up on four. Yeah, I sort of do that actually. I like they do. I like they do that actually. Um, Pebble's better from a variety of tees. Right, because it has it has a massive variety of tees that people don't know. When you're there, there's a ton of tees, different angles, and um, yeah, oh, it was great. I feel like that's, that's one thing fun. that d- isn't explored enough is like the idea of like you got to be prepared to play the entire golf course, and we aren't going to tell you where, what tees we're playing on what day. I think that the best thing that Mike Davis did um, was doing that. Like we get to Tory and there was all these rumors that he was going to play 14 as a drivable hole. And like, we couldn't work out, what do you mean? Like, and everyone's trying to like work out what yardages they were going to have from tees and caddies were scrambling and they were comparing books about where's he going to have this tee. And then every year for a few years after that, there was this rumor that he was going to play one of these long par fours as a short par four. And it like drove everyone nuts in practice rounds because we couldn't work out which one it was, but it was a great thing. You know, why does a, there's two, there's, there has, traditionally being like the par threes, you just play the four back to, you just go back, 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 back four days in a row, you hit five on in every hole, every day, every day on the fourth and seven on every day on that. And it's always a six on, on that hole. I think moving it a hundred yards one day, 200 yards, the next 170, the next, that's way more interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. So I like that they're doing that, especially at Pebble, because Pebble's a place that it really, I mean, four four changes completely, five goes from really tricky to maybe you, you kind of get more aggressive from a short tee, I think, sometimes. It's, well, it yeah. seemed like it like, really messed with them on five. Like, they just didn't know what to do. They kind of were, like, in shock that it was up there. I, we've played that. I feel like I played that tee in the US Open, maybe, like in Webb Simpson's year, maybe. But, um... Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Variety. They shouldn't do it because that's the tee that the amps hit off every time when we play in the Pro-Am, I think. The one in front of the ditch. Yeah, they were saying it was because there was no amps and no fans. It's like, I don't understand that at all. Like, I don't understand why you can't... Like, you're running the tournament. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's, again, it's that late thing. I mean, everyone's sort of... Everyone... Uh, it's like pins... It's like 16 at Phoenix. The 16th green at Phoenix, when you watch it, it's firmer than the other ones. They actually set 16 up to be harder than the other holes. It's like 10 at Riv. They really? set that green up harder. Absolutely. And they shouldn't. It should be the other way around. 16 at Phoenix should have a hole in one. It should be like 16 at uh, Augusta. It should have a hole in one pin. And there should be one day where everybody's just having hole in ones and like lipping it out because that's what the crowd wants to see. You know what I mean? That's what everybody wants to see. You just have to hit a good shot. I mean, 16 in Augusta is still a real hole, right? But like I've always told them, but they always seem to make that green a little bit firmer, harder to hit it close than the other 17 greens. And it's the upside down mentality, I reckon. You know, so I think it shouldn't always be set up. Everyone always sets up every hole to be as hard as they can. I think every now and then you should set them up to be easy. Like confusingly easy too. I think it's more interesting that way. It should, yeah, it should be a mix. Like that's, yes. I mean, that's the beauty. Is like my favorite thing is like a green where you've got a really easy setup. Like you can play. Uh, I'm trying to think now off the top of my head, but like you know, there's tons of places where you could have a, a pin in a place that's super easy, and then the next day you could put it somewhere where, you know, 15 at Riv is a good example of like, if you put the pin front left, it's always a hard hole because of the length, but you put that pin front left, people are going to make birdies when they put it back. Right. Nobody makes birdies. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think the day you have a front left, you have a front tee, maybe like yeah. you have it played quite easy Saturday and then really hard Sunday or something else. And I think most courses, and I think the better the course, the more you can do that. I mean, look at the Masters. I mean, they, Augusta, you can set up almost every hole relatively easy and you can set it up almost impossible because of the pin, you know. Um, St. Andrews, Royal Melbourne, all the great courses do that. And Riviera, they should do that more often for sure. Yeah, it, nobody it, cares. Nobody leaves tournament really unless it's a scoring record thinking, oh, that course wasn't any good. They shot 18 under this week. That must be a shit. Nobody thinks that. I mean, who thinks that? They walk out saying, how good was that? We're what we just watched today, you know. It's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly. That's I think par it goes back to par. Just gotta get get away from it. But or the mentality of it is the really the mentality of par because like yeah, if and it should. It, I think the other thing it would do is like these guys don't play practice rounds anymore, right? If you got to play the entire golf course, you're probably gonna play a little bit more on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh no, the, the golfers have become. Pro golf has become a a science experiment in a way, and they're very good at it. You know, yeah, this is getting all the numbers right and working on the range and doing all your things. So when you go on the course, and the yardage books are so good that you just plug in the numbers and go. 
it's not, yeah, you're not playing practice rounds Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and like crafting out a way to play the course anymore. So, but the level is so high now, you can't, you can't, uh, I know. They're, they're really good. <laughs> can't argue with it. It's really good. Yeah, variety. Uh, like you say, if there was always like infinite variety in setup, then guys would have to play more practice rounds. And that's you good for the product. Yes, absolutely. All right. That's all, right, all good. It's all good. That's, that's it. That's all we're talking about. You got anything oh, else right, you um, want to talk about? No. I... Uh, we're locked down again for a couple of days, so uh, no golf, but back to it soon, hopefully. You've been playing a lot? I played a bit, yeah. I played a couple of those. I played that player series event and the tournament but the week before. It was a small tournament. Um, I was playing quite a bit through our summer, yeah, recently. But, um, yeah, it's feeling right. I was getting a bit antsy to come play some real tournaments, actually, after I played a couple. But travel and the quarantine and kids back here and just the way the world is uh we'll just play that one one by one i guess day by day hey did you go down to that lonsdale place that you guys opened yet yeah lonsdale sweet it is really good you've obviously seen the drones and stuff i mean it's oh, yeah. a really very photogenic it's really cool um yeah so fun yeah it's just it's basically open for the members it's open now and we're just finishing off the path there's a little part three course um it's going to be a range and a part three course. It can be either, you know what I mean? Um, and that's opening. That's opening in a month and then it's, yeah, then they're away. Yeah, it's a great place. Really, really fun. One one thing that is super cool that I've seen, that we talked about the player series, super cool event. In America, the Wisconsin State Golf uh, Association hosts a par three tournament at the Sandbox, which is at Sand Valley. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's um, all ages, all handicaps it's men, men and women they have a men and a women's tournament but like a couple of years the, i mean the longest hole out there is like 150 yards the first year they did it they have college players playing in it they have you know it's all amateurs a four handicap one really because wow. I mean, it's all short short shots yeah, so yeah. So you take driver out all of a sudden it it, that could be a cool event to do it like Lotsdale at the par three course. A par three event would be great, like actually. Australian par three championship. We could do that. And you have- We thought we should, we wanted to do one at Shady, like like leading up to Colonial. You know what I mean? Have a little thing at like, they've got a great little par three. It'd be interesting to see if you played 72 holes around a legitimate par three course, who would actually be the best golfer? That would be that would be fun to watch. If I went and watched uh, the par three, it was incredible. I mean, you had you had like 60, 65 year old women playing. Then you have twenty one year old college kid playing, and it was. I mean, you, like the, I think the anybody could win the tournament because it's, yeah. it's so short. You know. Do you think? Um... If that was golf, do you think Rory, Bryson, DJ would still be the best? No. Be do, you think, in that. do you think Rory would beat Zach Johnson in, in 150 yards and in contest? No chance. No chance. No chance. Well, well, not no chance. Rory's pretty amazing. He'd have some chance, obviously. Um, 
but yeah, there are some specialists at that area. It'd be interesting. I think it'd be interesting. You're right. It'd be really cool. Who'd I mean, maybe not every week either, but like, there's not very many legitimate par three courses though. You know, most have been, they're coming, they're becoming cooler again now, you know, um, with the horse course, Prairie June or Prairie, Prairie Club, right? Yeah. Um, and Augusta's obviously always been there, but like, and Pebble, they're building that one again and Shady did theirs and, um, I know Bill and Ben have done a couple and Tom's done one or two. Gil's done a few. Like they're becoming cooler. So if you had 18 legitimate par threes, like, like legitimate ones, you know, inside in all inside 200, that would be an interesting tournament. It'd be an incredible, it'd be incredible to watch the PGA tour play that. I mean, getting, or, you know, that would be such a cool PGA LPGA crossover. That, yeah, the junior thing. Everybody yeah. in the same one. That would straight, be great. Everybody plays straight up. You know, it would be that'd be my favorite tournament of the year. Wow, well, we're gonna find a venue. Yeah, and then do it. All right. Hey, this was fun, and uh, good luck with quarantine. And we'll talk to you soon. Uh, it sounds good. Cheers, man.